Hey, thanks for tuning in to New Glasgow Christian Church. My name is Stephen Weatherby, and I'm the pastor here at NGCC, a small rural church with a big heart located in central Prince Edward Island, Canada. We're glad you're here. This week, we are continuing our series of messages on the letters to the seven churches found in Revelation 2 and 3. When people talk about Revelation, they usually spend most of their time trying to figure out how the world is going to end and where we are on a prophetic timeline. But that is not the question that we should be asking. Join us as we study God's Word and ask the question that truly matters. In light of the future that God has promised, what should we be doing here and now to be faithful to Him? This morning I'd like to begin by sharing a painting with you uh, by a man named Warner Salmon. And and hopefully you can see it. I know that it's a a bit um, dark, But this painting by Warner Salmon, he was a very gifted artist, and during World War II, he painted the famous and popular Head of Christ. Uh, And and this painting, the Head of Christ, uh, sold more than 500 million copies uh, over the last 75, 80 years. Among his other paintings that are famous is this painting here called Christ at the Door. And this is his rendering of Revelation 3.20. We haven't gotten that far yet. Uh, But that verse says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. The symbolism of this painting is very powerful. Uh, Jesus is patiently standing at a door, uh, just about to knock, and you might be able to notice uh, there's no handle on the door. Uh, There's no way for him to open it from the outside. These letters to the seven churches that we've been studying contain a lot to encourage the faithful. Uh, But five of the congregants or the congregations, have uh, orders to repent in them. And this painting uh, is based on Christ's call to the Laodicean church, which we'll be talking about in a few weeks. Uh, but this painting should make us stop and think, is Jesus standing at our heart's door and knocking? Is he standing at the door of my heart personally, or do Glasgow Christian Church, or the church in North America, and knocking? We've been studying these letters for over a month now. Uh, So far, we've read the letters to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, and Theatira. So I just want to give a quick recap of those churches. Uh, Ephesus was the church that had a whole bunch of good things going for them. They were focused on doing the right things, but their motivation was wrong. Their hearts weren't in the right place. They'd lost the love they had for Jesus when they first came to salvation. And, And that love is the very reason that we do all these things in the first place. The believers in Smyrna were really living out their faith, and they'd experienced a ton of persecution and a ton of suffering as a result of that. Uh, And they were so strong in their faith that Jesus doesn't actually have any criticism for them. They were um, so strong that they had no criticism, just praise, and a reminder to stay faithful, even if it led to their death. The church in Pergamum was strong in the face of persecution as well, and in the face of opposition, but they were starting to make compromises. They were compromising on their faith and their beliefs to fit into the culture around them. They were starting to join in with the idol worship and getting involved in some pretty gross and sinful stuff. So Jesus called them to repent, or he says that he will fight against them with the sword of his mouth. Then last week we learned about the church in Theatira. The believers in that city had love. They had faith. And they served Jesus with dedication. 
and with perseverance, and they were growing in their faith as a church. But they also, like Pergamum, were compromising with the culture to fit in to society. And not only that, they actually had a single person identified as a false prophet who was leading people into that, leading people astray. So Jesus warns them that they must repent and have nothing to do with this false prophet or else they would be punished alongside her. Now, when we began this series, I said that these letters take a sort of form. Um, They don't all have all the components of this form, but generally there's uh, an introduction or a greeting, there's good things, there's bad things, uh, and there's uh, usually a call to do something, uh, and then consequences are what will happen if they don't, and then usually there's a reward. Uh, So this is the form. They don't always have all those components. Um, So, for example, like Smyrna, we saw that all he had was praise. There was good things for them. But the church we're studying today, Sardis, Jesus has nothing good to say about them as a church. And and so this will be a little more of a rough week um, as far as these seven letters go because there's nothing good to say about this church as a whole. So as we dive into this letter, uh, those four filters that we've been talking about, I just want to remind everyone of those uh, and to kind of put our mind in to see the letter through those filters. Uh, So the first is the question we've been asking all through this series, which was, in light of the future that God has promised, what would he have us do now as his followers in order to be faithful to him? So that's the first thing to be continually asking as we study this. The second thing to remember is that this letter is not just written to first century Sardis. It is written to them, but it's also written to the full and complete church, and that includes us here. The third thing is to remember that these are the words of the Son of Man. These are the words of Jesus. And remember that he has power, authority, and absolute knowledge of our deeds and our actions, and his holiness. Remember his holiness as we read these words to the churches. And the fourth thing is to remember that there's a blessing for those who study Revelation, If we hear the words of these letters, and then we do what they say, we will be blessed. So with that said, let's read this letter to the church in Sardis. So starting in verse 1 of chapter 3, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. And this is where we have the the tiny, tiny little piece of something positive. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, so that's the letter. Uh, And as we have each week, I'd like to start by talking a bit about Sardis, just so we can kind of picture this city uh, and remind ourselves that it is a real place. Uh, so Sardis was one of the most old and important cities in Asia Minor. And, and usually, you're probably noticing a lot of these cities, it's not like these backwater villages. It's big, 
metropolises, its, its centers of culture and, and trade and, and religion and Roman administrative presence. Sardis is one of the oldest and most important cities. Its history went back a thousand years or more before the early church started. And it was located in a valley at the, at the foot of a mountain with a citadel at the top of the mountain that provided military protection around the city. There was a huge Roman administrative presence in Sardis, as well as a theater, a temple to Artemis, a gymnasium, and a Jewish synagogue. And there's been a ton of excavation in Sardis, so there's lots to see if you decide someday to take a trip to Turkey and see these churches. I'd like to show you a few pictures in the meantime. Uh, the first picture on the screen, this is the gymnasium complex. And it's hard to tell because it's a picture, um, but if you go to this next picture, there's a little blue circle, and that is a person. So it's hard to see, but the person probably as tall as like an eighth of one of the pillars on the bottom floor. So this gymnasium is huge. Now this, uh, this next picture is the courtyard leading into the Jewish synagogue. Uh, so there was a huge Jewish presence. This is just the courtyard outside. Um, and then this next picture is inside the main lecture area. So you can kind of see a lectern up at the front. So this, uh, in those days, they wouldn't have sat on chairs. They would have just stood or sat on the floor. So you can imagine how many people would have fit in here. This was a huge uh, Jewish population in this city. And then finally, just for fun, I threw this picture in. Uh, I don't know if you can tell. Uh, this is an ancient toilet. Um, I came across this in my study. So there's these this big stone part with the four holes. You'd sit on the holes, and there'd be running water below through this uh, trench that would carry away um, whatever you were there for. So... <laughs> Now, this particular toilet is a four-seater, so if you wanted to invite your friends to keep you company, um, you could do that. So uh, today I'm thankful for modern plumbing and private bathrooms and doors. Um, but I just threw that in for a little fun. Uh, if you want to see any more of those pictures, um, I, I'll just mention that on that learning hub we put up, there's a whole bunch of pictures as well as these ones uh, on there that you can look and kind of see all around the city. I just include a few each week. Uh, but my hope, again, with sharing all these pictures is to, to kind of help us envision these cities, get a feel for what they were like, and, and to remind us that they were real historical places. Uh, these were not just, uh, you know, mythical letters to a fairy tale city that didn't exist. This is all real historical stuff. Uh, and, and you can still go to all these cities and see them today. Now, the city of Sardis was completely destroyed by an earthquake in 17 AD and it was completely rebuilt by the emperor within three years. Uh, so they were very, very fond of the Romans in this city. Uh, to them, the Romans were their saviors. There was a huge religious presence, including a fertility cult, Artemis worship, and a few other smaller deities, as well as what we saw with that synagogue, a huge, huge Jewish presence as well. Now, despite all this, I, I say all of this to kind of share uh, the Christians in Sardis, unlike the other churches, really avoided all the persecution and heresies that the other churches were facing. And I found that fascinating. You have all these uh, other religions going on, like the other cities. You have the, the Jewish population, and they were at the heart of the persecution in a lot of the other cities. Uh, you have the Roman uh, administrative presence, and the Romans were persecuting the Christians in the other cities. But not in Sardis. 
And that was good because they weren't dying for their faith and no one really wants to die. Uh, and they, but then they weren't compromising to fit in, which is good. But we have to remember that Jesus looks at our hearts, not the surface. And the problem was that as a result of their fairly sheltered existence as a church, their spiritual life had not developed like in the other churches. They'd become complacent and happy to just kind of float along and exist. So that's a little bit of background on Sardis. So let's get into this letter and kind of see what Jesus has to say to them. So in the introduction, he says, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And and we've seen in each of these letters, there's always an open statement that looks back to that vision in the first chapter of Revelation. Uh, And it always directly relates to where they are as a church. So for Ephesus, he says, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars and walks among the seven lampstands. It's very similar to this church. And then he tells Ephesus that if they don't repent, their lampstand will be removed. For Smyrna, he says, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. And then he says that if they remain faithful, they will not be hurt by the second death. They will also receive life. For Pergamum, he says, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. And if you remember, that sword was coming out of his mouth. It's literally coming out of the mouth of Jesus. And as we will see, that's a very relevant image to Pergamum because Jesus says if they do not repent of their sin, he will come and fight against them with the sword of his mouth. For Theatira, he says, these are the words of the Son of God. He has authority. His eyes are like blazing fire, which if you remember is a metaphor of judgment and omnipotence and omniscience. He he knows what's going on in his churches. His eyes pierce through our hearts. He always knows what is happening truly below the surface. And then for our church today in Sardis, similar to Ephesus, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And if you remember, the seven spirits are the angels to the churches and the seven stars are the churches. But it also represents the full and complete church. So they're experiencing peace as a church, a a, a lack of persecution and a lack of opposition. But as a church, he reminds them, Jesus holds the churches. He has them in his hand. He is in control of the churches. He holds them in his right hand. And what he does with them as a church will depend on how they respond to his message. But make no mistake, He holds them. He is in control of what happens next. This can be a powerful reminder uh, that is both a cause for worry if you're in that situation, but it can also be a reason for comfort as well as the church, that Jesus holds us in his hand regardless of what's going on in the world around us. So that's his introduction, and then we go immediately to the bad. We skip the good because there's nothing good to say to the church as a whole. He says, I know your deeds, which he says to every church. He knows their deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. So we skip right to this harsh statement. Uh, He goes immediately to the bad. They have a good reputation as a church, but they don't deserve to have one. When Jesus says they have a reputation for being alive, he's talking about the spiritual life of the church. Uh, So to be dead is to be so morally or spiritually deficient as to essentially be dead. And I think it's about as harsh of a condemnation as he can give to a church. 
Um, after reminding them of the dignity and power of Jesus, after reminding them that he holds them in his hand and he controls their future, he says they're still spiritually dead. Now, I want to just jump to the side for a second and say that as I was studying for this, one continual trend I found among preachers is that they always connect Sardis to the smaller churches that just kind of exist or float along. But as I studied this, it just didn't resonate with me. It just didn't feel like what he was saying because, and again, not to be critical of any church, but he said that Sardis is the church that has a reputation for being alive. And a lot of preachers connected to the church that everyone thinks is dead. Um, and to me, that's not a good connection because it sounds like he's saying that Sardis is the church that has a reputation for being alive, vibrant, and healthy. Everyone thinks it's the good, healthy church. It sounds to me like everyone thinks Sardis is the cool, exciting, vibrant, healthy church. But it reminds us that while we're always so focused on all the external stuff that doesn't matter, uh, Jesus sees straight through to our hearts and sees our true spiritual state. In this case, he says they don't deserve the reputation of being alive. He sees through all the exterior stuff, and he sees what's inside the heart of Sardis. They are dead. Spiritually, there's not a single good thing he can say about them as a church, except for that one little comment later, which really is not a good thing for the church as a whole. So with nothing good to say and the charge that they're spiritually dead, here's what they need to do. He says, wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. So since they're basically spiritually dead, they need to wake up, uh, to come back to life, to arise or to experience such a change in their nature by, that by comparison, they've moved from death to life. Ephesians 5 verses 10 to 14 says, carefully determine what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It's shameful to even mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. That's why it is said, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So in this case, Jesus is the light. He's exposing them for who they truly are. He's illuminating their hearts and revealing that they are spiritually dead, and he's calling them to change, to wake up, to rise from the dead and strengthen what is left of them as a church before they completely die. Unless the tiny ember that remained was fanned into a new flame, the church would be lost completely. It might have been pleasing to men in its current state. People thought it was the, the healthy church, but the church was not pleasing to Jesus. He says, For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. So the other churches, you know, they were persecuting, they were in hiding. Um, they were still growing. They were working, serving, and loving. They were being persecuted for it. They were paying the price with their little jobs and their lives. And certainly they were not perfect. They had bad things too that Jesus had to address. But the church in Sardis, however, was not doing enough to even be worthy or, or worth the time of persecuting. So they clearly had a long way to go. 
So he says, therefore, because their deeds were not complete in God's sight, remember. They needed to do the following in order to wake up as a church. Uh, The first was to receive what they had heard, or remember what they had received and heard. The word of God, salvation, forgiveness, grace, the message of redemption through Jesus Christ. They needed to remember the gospel. That is how bad of shape they were in as a church. The second thing they needed to do was keep it. Don't lose it again. Remember what they had received and heard, and don't forget about it. Establish it as their core identity. Don't forget why they exist. Persist in being obedient. Fulfill their part in the Great Commission as a church. And then the third thing they needed to do was to repent. And we've heard that command to pretty much every church that has had something wrong to talk about. Uh, And we talked about what true biblical repentance is. It means to accept in humility where you truly are and what you are doing wrong, and then turn your back on it and change. We treat it like it's an apology, um, and I think that that's a part of it. It's a, fa- it's a factor, uh, but it doesn't really capture the whole essence of what true biblical repentance is. But without true humility and true change, you do not have true repentance. So that is what Jesus says they need to do, and then we come to the consequences for what will happen if they don't listen. So in verse 3, he says, But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. That consequence is tied to the words of Jesus in Matthew 24, verses 42 to 44. He says, Therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming... He would have kept watch and would have not let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. And then I'm going to jump over to 1 Thessalonians 5, 4 to 6. It says, But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should not surprise you like a thief. You were all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. And the moral here is that Jesus, someday, he's promised he's coming back. He's going to come back like a thief when no one expects him. And for that reason, we as the church should always be expecting him. So what he is saying to the church here is that if they are not ready for him, when he comes back, there will be consequences. What are the consequences? Uh, And for that, we have to go back to Matthew 24, Verses 48 to 51. Jesus says, But what if the servant is evil and thinks, My master won't be back for a while? Context, uh, the servant was left in charge of the household while the master left in this parable. So what if the servant is evil and thinks, My master won't be back for a while? And he begins beating the other servants, partying and getting drunk. The master will return unannounced and unexpected, and he will cut the servant to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the warning is that as a church, they need to be living in a way that shows they are ready and expecting Jesus to return at any time. He holds the churches in his hand. We are his body. We are accountable to him as servants. And so we must always be ready for him to return.
So that's the consequences. And then we come to the closing comments or, or the, the reward if they do this. And this is, again, where he has that one tiny, nice thing to say, sort of. He says, yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. So there's a couple people who aren't terrible. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will like them be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. And that's as close as we get to a commendation. There's a few people who aren't completely terrible. They are worthy. Uh, now, just for a little bit of cultural uh, flavor in here, many of the temples in the area wouldn't let people in to worship the local deities if their clothes were dirty. Their entry, they thought, would insult the god that they were worshiping. Uh, and so that kind of gives the idea, he's using this analogy to kind of describe that Jesus almost considers the church to be insulting to him in its current state. Then he says, the one who is victorious will be dressed in white, like those few that aren't terrible. He won't erase their name from the book of life. And again, you have to kind of take the whole of Scripture into context here, but even still, I find this to be a scary statement. Because A, this letter is written to a church. This is not written to non-Christians. This is written to believers in a church. And B, it indicates that the one who does not overcome he may erase their name. And again, we have to take the whole scripture into context here and not read too much into one thing, but I still think that is a scary statement and it's something that we should think about. Then finally, he finishes with that familiar statement we've heard to all the churches. Whoever has an ear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the plural churches, the full and complete church. So that's the letter to the church in Sardis. Um, that's probably one of the harshest letters we've, written, we've read so far. Um, and again, I haven't really been giving takeaways or application in this series as I usually do, um, because I, I don't want to jump in and tell you what to take out of this. I want to leave that for you to kind of figure out through prayer and, and speaking to the Holy Spirit uh, through prayer. Um, but I have been giving some of my thoughts on these letters, just some of my own application. You know, I'm studying this for a week. What is Stephen, not as a pastor necessarily, but just as a fellow Christian, what did I get out of this uh, as I studied? Uh, so I'd like to do that as well today. Uh, to me, this is one of the two letters, uh, including looking at the ones we haven't studied yet. It's one of the two letters that sticks with me personally the most in relation to not us here, but the church as a whole across North America where we are right now, uh, the, the, the full and complete church. The sad fact is that as a, a global entity, or even a North, more like a North American entity, um, specifically Canada and the United States, uh, so many of our churches think they are alive just because they exist. The metrics we use to measure how healthy a church is, I also personally find flawed. You know, I think, you know, people will say, oh, church is healthy if you have a lot of people, or church is healthy if you have a modern building, or comfy chairs, or how many young people there are, families. And I feel like it's not that those things are bad. I just don't know if it's a good way to measure how healthy a church is, considering how Jesus sees the church, if that makes sense. Um, to me, it seems that Jesus kind of cuts through all the external things and says, 
what is the state of the heart of the people in the church? Um, and I feel like there's, there's no sense of urgency anymore. Uh, and that's fair because, you know, Jesus said he was coming soon and it's been 2,000 years. You know, it's hard to feel that sense of urgency they may have felt 20 or 30 years after Jesus left. Um, I get that. And I feel the same way. Um, but there's no fear of the fact that Jesus is coming like a thief. Uh, no desire to make sure that we are ready uh, as the church in North America. We're kind of complacent with where we're at uh, in North America. So for us, I think the question as the North American church is this. In the same question that uh, Jesus asked Sardis is, are our deeds complete in the sight of God? So that's kind of some of my thoughts, um, and it, it's a little more abstract this week than it is some weeks. Um, just my kind of musings about the church, um, specifically in Western culture. Um, so as we conclude today, and considering everything we learned, everything we talked about, I want to ask that filtering question one more time and then leave you guys to kind of think through this through the week as well and, and to see where um, the Holy Spirit leads you. So the question is, in the light of the future that God has promised, what would he have us do now in order to be faithful to him? So with that, I'll close. Um, and I'll just, again, remind everyone to keep asking that question. Uh, seek his will and the Holy Spirit's guidance and be ready to accept whatever he has to say to you. And remember once again that God's blessing is on us as a church as we seek his will for our lives. I'll close in prayer. Father God, I thank you so much that we do have salvation through your son Jesus. And I just thank you so much that you have blessed us in so many ways and that you have us in your hand and that we are your body. I just ask that you would give us clarity and focus with everything going on in the world around us, with all the distractions that we experience in Western culture, uh, that you would just give us clarity and focus to remember what truly matters and to not get caught up in all the, the, the white noise of what's going on around us. Just help us to focus on you, to fill our hearts with you, and to submit to your leading for us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Once again, thanks for tuning in. We hope that this week's teaching was a blessing and an encouragement to you. If you live in the New Glasgow area, we would love for you to come and to join us for our Sunday gathering. For information on service time, location, and more, check out our website at ngcc.ca. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening and have a great week.